This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You've probably heard the term breakthrough infection. Do you know what it means? Also, Canada and cybersecurity. We do things much differently than many other countries, and Canada's female athletes are absolutely killing it at the Olympics, leading the way. Why? Why are they excelling? And how can we turn that into future opportunities for women in sport? Also today, we're going to talk about COVID rule changes in Alberta. Some big ones coming up very shortly. We'll take some of your calls today. Let's deal with breakthrough infections because, uh, you know, it's a phrase that we keep using, we keep hearing, we keep talking about, and I don't know if we have 100% certainty on what it means. So let's try and get some insight into exactly what we're talking about when we say breakthrough infections. Joining us is Sanjay Mishra, Project Coordinator and Staff Scientist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center at Vanderbilt University. Uh, Sanjay, thanks for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me here, Sushant. So let's just get the definition. When we say breakthrough infection, exactly what does that mean? What are we talking about? Well, the breakthrough infection, uh, literally, if you break it down, the break part is important. What we mean by breakthrough infection is that the virus broke through the protection that the vaccines are supposed to provide. Okay. Now, there are uh, scientific definitions. Uh, The CDC defines it by uh, counting that uh, after uh, 14 days, which is expected to be the definition into which you supposed to have the vaccination effect begin to take yep. in. Yep. So if your collection have been after 14 days uh, and you have completed all the recommended doses as uh, advised, uh, according to FDA, that would be a breakthrough infection if you got one. And we expected there would be some, right? We know that the vaccine is not 100% effective, so we anticipated we would see some of these so-called breakthrough infections. That's correct, because the efficacy is the way they are measured. They are measured in uh, in a very uh, somewhat of an artificial setting. You will recall that uh, for, by by having a clean data, we ex- the the trials generally exclude certain set of people. There's a specific age group that they want to focus on, which is where they can understand uh, as it makes sense, right? So, yeah. uh, and even then, ninety five percent is what the efficacy they found, which simply means that the five percent. When you compare those who were vaccinated versus those who were not vaccinated, there will be five uh, percent people of the vaccinated, the unvaccinated who still got the disease will still catch the virus. So that's where the uh, sometimes the confusion comes that mm-hmm. when we say ninety percent efficacious means that ninety percent of everybody will not get a disease, which is not correct because. Uh, what happens when you vaccinate um, after the uh, the vaccine has been provided, the body begins to prepare antibodies as the first step of defense against that. And then the idea is that the antibodies stay there first round. Then you have to give the second booster at that point, the second shot of the good amount of antibodies come. And then while the antibodies slowly wane out, the body begins to prepare itself for keeping a memory of that in the long term. So if you come across the virus uh, by natural infection, bodies prepare to fight against that. So uh, a lot of the people, there are certain subset of people in the real life. And so we are moving away from the trial 
they don't zero convert. What that means is that when you get the vaccination, not everybody makes the antibodies equally. So okay. if you are a cancer patient, if you are old, and there are other natural reasons for which you would not fully zero convert. So those people would definitely fall below that efficacy. Gotcha. Okay. Now, can those numbers be changed by anything? Uh, I'm thinking about couple of things here. First of all, we're seeing uh, a large increase in cases in many areas, especially in the United States, but parts of Canada too. Um, can more community spread affect it? And what about variants? Can those two factors change the commonality of breakthrough infections? Will we see more? Yeah, the variants are the biggest problem because you would remember that the vaccine was created against the original virus, which traditionally in science we call a Wuhan virus. And that was what came in the first wave early uh, in the late December, early January of the 2020. Since then, um, so many new variants have come. So the alpha was already very infectious, and then the delta came along, and delta is is one of the most infectious that we have seen so far. So obviously, when you have these high, very infectious variants, uh, they definitely create a problem, which means that, uh, and then on top of it, of course, the community transmission. So in the beginning, if you had a small percentage of the people that you came across who were who were spreading virus, the likelihood of you getting infected from them would be lower. As more and more people have been exposed and more, of, more and more of them have been carrying the virus, then the likelihood of you running into somebody who has, uh, who has been infected, not even knowing, because in the case of uh, SARS-CoV-2, a good many number of people don't develop any yeah. um, actual symptom for quite some time. So you think that you are meeting somebody who's not infected, but in the meantime, actually they were infected and then you get exposed. So that reduces the vaccine uh, efficacy significantly. Gotcha. Okay. So nothing unexpected here, nothing surprising. What about the fact that they're saying people who are vaccinated can spread the disease? We knew that, right? We knew that that, that was still a possibility, but it is reduced. How, how, how much reduction are we seeing in transmissibility in the vaccinated? quite know that. Uh, so the fact that this was expected is uh, both. It's mixed and non-mixed. So okay. when you develop a vaccine early on, uh, you hope that that will happen, but very few vaccines actually have um, what is called the sterilizing immunity in the sense that once you have been vaccinated, the immunity will be so strong that you will fight the virus even from entering into the body and not only entering it, if it does enter, nothing will you will not make the virus at all. And that was true only for the smallpox. I mean, that's the only vac- that's the only situation where once infected, you would never, ever get infected and okay. you would not even spread the virus. I mean, even for measles and polio, a polio, virus, polio vaccine, which was one of the most effective that we can remember, it doesn't stop you from actually getting the virus in the body. Uh, you can continue to have it. In fact, you can excrete it out. But because so many people are already vaccinated, uh, you don't actually see the disease spreading out. So... Uh, sterilizing immunity was hoped, but it is not expected. It doesn't happen always. Uh, so, uh, yes, it is true that uh, a good many people would still, uh, they might get infected uh, if they are vaccinated, um, but they should not be spreading virus. Now, with these highly infectious virus, uh, and the data is still not quite published, so I wouldn't make a comment on it, but there are definitely some early hints that uh, those who have been vaccinated can still be um, transmissive. Uh, what is the level of transmission? It is not clear. But for Delta, we know that it is, if you are infected, you have about a thousand times more virus in your body yeah. than had you been infected with the older Wuhan virus. So 
that becomes a problem uh, in terms of the unsymptomatic people still probably be spreading even if they are vaccinated. Thank you so much for your time and uh, your insight. I think cleared up a lot of the questions people had. Uh, Sanjay, thank you so much. Thank you. That is Sanjay Mistra, who is a project coordinator and staff scientist at Vanderbilt. Uh, we're going to switch gears for a, a moment right now, though. We're going to talk about something. We've talked about this on the air before several times, cyber attacks and ransomware attacks and, and the fact that we're seeing them more and more often and in larger scale. You know, the last one actually affected an, uh, a service provider, so then it spread through to thousands and thousands of different companies all around the world. These kinds of things are going to continue. It doesn't seem to this point we've found an uh, effective way of stopping this. Uh, especially, you know, punishing the people involved. Uh, They make a lot of money off it, and uh, it's proven very effective to them. So we've had some governments talking about, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. One thing we need to look at, according to our next guest, is what we're doing to prepare, what we are doing to protect ourselves, uh, because that's something that we can do. Um, And a lot of different countries around the world handle it in a way that Seems to make sense to me, but Canada doesn't. So we're going to talk about that now with uh, Yuan Stevens. Yuan is, just trying to find out here, Yuan is uh, policy lead on technology, cybersecurity, and democracy at the Ryerson Leadership Lab at Ryerson. Uh, Yuan, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So these these cyber attacks, this ransomware, we know that um, at this point, there's not really an effective means of stopping this, right? These are going to continue. It's going to be something that we're dealing with at least for the next little while, right? Yeah, for the foreseeable future, for sure. And to be clear, ransomware attacks are a type of cyber attack. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. And and there's all all different kinds, for sure. Um, now, mm-hmm. when we take a look at the way that they do this, it's basically going into a system and attacking through known vulnerabilities, things that, you know, they can somehow work around and, and exploit to their advantage, right? These are vulnerabilities in the system primarily. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that I don't talk about my work, but I think is really important, is to consider human vulnerabilities. So yeah. you think about, you talk to someone, you email them, you can, you can indeed manipulate a person to think that your intentions are good. So I'm, you know, what I'm looking at in my work which I'm happy to talk about today, is um, vulnerabilities in systems themselves. So computer code, protocols, that kind of thing. But one of the biggest sources of uh, attack in terms of cyber attacks and ransomware is the human side of things. So being able to manipulate a person. That will probably always be there, but there are things we can do when it comes to the computer code and the systems themselves. And that looks like letting people disclose these problems that they find um, so that they can be fixed before they're exploited by an attacker. Now, other countries have ways of doing this, right? They actually invite people to attack their system. This is something that happens in several other countries around the world, right? Yes, definitely. So the U.S. Um, is uh, one of the most advanced countries in this regard. The, the U.K. and the Netherlands are countries that, um, where their governments say, you know, they're a good intention people here we think that if you want to find something and if you see a problem that you think should be fixed you can actually disclose that to us so the u.s has this as mentioned and what that looks like is let's say you're using one of the government systems and you say hey i can actually use a form and actually access information in a way that i don't think i should be able to i want to disclose this so you can fix it um, many countries around the world, and we found in, in, in my research at the Virus and Leadership Lab that 60% of G20 members actually facilitate 
the disclosure of these weaknesses, but Canada does not. What that means is that, um, you know, let's say you're using an Immigration Canada website or yeah. one of the systems, you're using CRA, you're not, it's not clear who, who you disclose this problem to, what's going to happen. It's a bit of a black box. And I mean, when you contrast that to the U.S., I mean, they actually came out with a program called Hack the Pentagon. They invited exactly. people to come in and do this. So they're actively seeking people to test their system and then report where the weaknesses are. Canada, on the other hand, has nothing like this in place, right? In fact, you can get in trouble if you hack a Canadian system. Exactly. Now, Canada's hacking law is actually very similar to the U.S. hacking law in many ways. But what Canada, um, well, what the U.S. has done that Canada is not is that they've They've instituted these processes, these programs like, you know, the Hack the Pentagon program that says we're going to work with hackers and we're going to invite you to, as as you mentioned, test our systems to see where we're going wrong, to see what can be exploited. Um, What Canada has never done is never really made an open call working with hackers. They do work with hackers. We just don't know what that looks like. They work from them on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, one of the major problems is we don't know what Canada is doing. And of course, the reason, you know, they, you know, for example, the, um, the communication security establishment, you know, they, they want to protect our national security. Um, they have reasons for keeping some of this information limited, but they're, are, I'm sure many bugs, for example, on Canadian um, government websites that um, exist and that can be exploited, but we don't know um, what happens if you disclose that. And you could indeed, um, you're discouraged to, from doing that by our hacking law here in Canada. So what are we missing out on? Are there examples where the U.S. has done, you know, hacked the Pentagon or invited hackers in other cases where they've had um, potential vulnerabilities exposed and been able to deal with them before it ended up being some sort of malicious attempt? So here's the funny thing about working with security vulnerabilities is that a lot of the harm will be hypothetical. Okay. Um, what, yeah, so what you do um, when, you know, when you submit a, a vulnerability report is you say, here's how this could be exploited. In the Hack the Pentagon program and in many of the other programs that the U.S. government has used, they do indeed find thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of vulnerabilities that they wouldn't have found based on their internal security teams. I have to admit as well, one of the downsides of what the U.S. is doing is that it potentially can um, kind of make uh, sort of it means that you can rely on there being vulnerable systems if you're just going to pay outside people to find that. That means that, that maybe people who are doing work, if they're being paid, um, are in vulnerable working situations. However, I think that it is possible to work with hackers without having to sort of create a workforce yeah. and inviting them to disclose vulnerabilities as other whistleblowers. And whistleblower protection is really important for finding wrongdoing and finding examples of harm. Um, but yeah, indeed, these systems do find a lot of vulnerabilities. So are, are there cybersecurity experts in government that recognize they need to put in some sort of guarantees of no legal repercussions and make this, you know, are they are they working to move down this path towards where other countries are? That is a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. What I know is that a lot of businesses are implementing these sort of programs that allow hackers to work, um, disclose these flaws they find. I have not yet seen an indication that there are people in the Canadian government who understand that this is one key solution. However, there is actually a vulnerability disclosure um, process with the COVID alert app. It doesn't include any sort of promise that you won't be found you know, liable under criminal law um, or all the other laws that could apply. But 
COVID alert app, thanks to people who um, helped lead the charge with that app, um, does indeed allow you to disclose flaws, and that's a great first step, and I want to see more of that in Canada. Yeah, it seems to make perfect sense. Jan, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Happy to speak. It's Jan Stevens, uh, who's taking a look at, you know, what Canada's doing and maybe should be doing in order to deal with this ongoing cybersecurity situation. She's the policy lead on technology, cybersecurity, and democracy at the Ryerson Leadership Lab at Ryerson. All right, we're going to talk about the Olympics for a few minutes here. Uh, a lot of you watching them. A lot of people really interested. And it's been, it's been fantastic. The competition has been so good. And now if you've been paying to the Olympics, attention to the Olympics, even in the most passing, uninterested kind of a way, you've likely noticed a trend when it comes to Team Canada. Um, as far as I know, every medal has been won by women. Now, there could be a guy that won one last night. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I might have missed one or two. But I know prior to last night, every single medal won by Team Canada was won by a female athlete. Pretty awesome. Um, But at the same time, it leads to the question about, well, why are they doing so much better? And do we need to give them more opportunities to showcase their talents? So to get some information on, you know, what's going on with Team Canada, we're going to chat now with Alison Sandmeyer-Graves, who is the CEO of Canadian Women in Sport. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Now, this is not a uniquely Canadian phenomenon, nor is it a new phenomenon. We're seeing Team Canada doing really well on the women's side so far at these Olympics. That's happened before, right? Team Canada, uh, the women are typically very strong performers. Well, they give us so much to cheer for, and I think it's such a celebration of women in sport, which is important in a country where there still is quite a gap in the participation of girls versus boys. But, uh, yes, we saw this before in Rio. Uh, Women took home most of the medals, and they led in the medal count as well in that first week. So I know we're going to see more to come from all all corners of the Olympic team, but it's been a pretty exciting start for the women. Um, Do we have any work around why the women seem to do so much better, uh, especially at the Summer Games, and why they're performing so exceptionally well and better than um, their male counterparts? Well, I think that there's probably a lot of theories at this point. There's probably a lot of analysis that will happen among the various sports when this is all said and done. Uh, You know, I would say that one of our competitive advantages in Canada is that overall in this country, there there are a lot more opportunities for women than there are elsewhere in the world. Uh, within sport, but also outside of sport. Uh, there are a lot of places in the world where women are still really prohibited even from playing a lot of sports or just don't receive a lot of support to do so. So Canada has been working on this for a lot of years. We mm-hmm. do have a long way to go still, but I think it's really paying off. Yeah, clearly. Clearly something is paying off. There's no doubt about it. And the country seems to love it. Like you said, it's so inspiring. Um, the women just, people just adore what they're doing, can't get enough of it, um, they really do sort of spark the country, don't they? They inspire a lot of people. They absolutely do. And we are just, uh, we're so excited to watch them during the Olympics and the Paralympics to come. And so I think that what we would love to see is this sort of enthusiasm for women's sport really carrying in between the Olympics into the media, into sponsorship, and of course in our communities as well. Yeah, and it just, it's a trickle-down effect. So, 
the question that was asked in the piece that you were part of here is, why don't we see more success with women's pro sports leagues? If we all get so wrapped up in what the Canadian women are doing over there, obviously we love it. We love to watch it. We love to be part of it. Why doesn't that translate to the pro sports side? Oh, that is complex, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so for, for your listeners, I mean, when you consider the the amount of, of pro sport opportunities for men, it just pales in comparison yeah. for women. Um, and efforts to establish pro leagues, for instance, in hockey, uh, with the Canadian Women's Hockey League in Canada, ultimately uh, have not worked out. Well, interestingly, only 4% of media coverage goes to women's sports. And that's in a good year. That's in an Olympic year. So what it means is that women's sports are just not as familiar to people. They don't get opportunities to watch it. They don't get opportunities to learn all about it, learn the stories, the players, all of that sort of thing. And it leads to, unfortunately, lower kind of understanding, lower value for women playing sport. Uh, What we're seeing that's really positive, though, is growing demand for women's sport on TV. Uh, The WNBA and other uh, leagues, primarily in the States, Mm -hmm. have seen seen record audiences uh, over the last year and a half. So we know that there's appetite. There just needs to be opportunities now. And I think media and sponsors coming together around this is really going to be key. And I think you make a really, really good point. We know that the interest is there. We know that people will watch um, women competing at sports at high levels like this. That's been proven by these Olympics. There's no question. Um, and, and that ultimately will be the make or break for these leagues, just like it is for any sporting league. If the interest is there and they get the opportunity to showcase it, these leagues will probably thrive. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the fans aren't, aren't, uh, just strictly women, uh, you know, fans really cut across the board. And so I think there's, there is growing demand for it. And uh, there's growing uh, commitment also coming from both media and companies. We're seeing that with the, uh, the Dream Gap Tour that was put on by the PWHPA, the Professional Women's Players Hockey Association. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, there's signs of progress. But we've got a long way to go, and the men's leagues have had decades to develop yes. with tons of investment and to grow their audiences and their opportunities. We're in a real catch-up mode for women. I We weren't scheduled to talk about this, so if you, if you don't want to weigh in on this, feel free to just say, I, I don't want to talk about that. But uh, we've seen a real focus on mental health issues with athletes at the Olympic Games. And once again, it's the women that are leading the way and sort of shining a light that, you know what, if, if my ankle was hurt, you wouldn't say anything about it, but I, I, my head is just not right, and sort of saying this is important and I, I'm not at my best to compete. Um, we're really seeing that become a major conversation at these Olympics. Once again, it's the women leading it. I think this is wonderful for sports and for mental health awareness overall. I'm really pleased to see that Simone Biles has had so many very public uh, expressions of support for her choice. I think Naomi Osaka had a bit of a different response to her uh, her choice not to talk to the media recently uh, due to mental health. But yeah, you know what? Um, and women, and particularly women of color, are really judged harshly often. Um, and so the fact that they are are being really bold, very courageous, frankly, and saying, you know, this is what I need. I need to listen to myself. I know my body uh, best. Mm-hmm. And for Simone, like this, it's a question of physical safety, too. I mean, if your head isn't right and you're pulling off the absolutely incredibly dangerous moves that she's doing, it could be catastrophic. But I hope that it gives 
all athletes, but especially girls, permission to assert control over their own bodies, over their own sort of situation, and to say no when it doesn't feel right for them. Um, so often girls are, are really perfectionists. They want to please people. We see that in the research. Um, but it, it has to, there has to be a line somewhere, and I think setting boundaries is always a healthy thing. Yeah, I think and it's amazing to see. Uh, Allison, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. That's Allison Sandmeyer-Graves. Uh, giving us a little insight on what's going on with the ladies who are just absolutely crushing it at the Olympics. She's the CEO of Canadian Women in Sport. I definitely want to spend a lot of time talking to you today and getting your input, your reaction, your thoughts to the announcement by Dr. Dina Hinshaw yesterday. It has... uh, Got a lot of people really, really, really upset. And I understand why. Some of it is definitely alarming. Now, I've been very pro-vaccine on this show and saying I think the vaccines are the way out. And I've said trust the science. And when the vaccine hits the point that they said it has to hit, then I don't think we need the restrictions. And we're there. We're well past there because we were originally told 70-20. Okay, with the Delta variant, things changed a little bit. Now we're at 75-65. I think the vaccines are going to do what they need to do in order to protect the healthcare system. I don't see a need to go back to any kind of lockdown, any kind of restrictions. I'm good with the restrictions coming off. Always have been. But some of the changes that were announced yesterday, I can't figure out. They don't make any sense to me. Now, let's go back to the beginning of the announcement. Dr. Hinshaw talking about the current state of affairs in our province right now. And as she said, uh, what we're looking at right now is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's what we've got. 95% of cases in the province since July 1st are in unvaccinated people. 94% of hospitalizations, 95% of deaths, unvaccinated people. So she's making it pretty clear that We still have a situation on our hands, but we know who it's affecting. I want to be clear that COVID is not over. COVID-19 is still a serious virus and it can have life-threatening consequences. And it is now primarily infecting people who don't have their vaccine, who are the minority of those who are eligible. Makes sense. Don't think that surprises anybody. We're all good on there. So some changes as of today, immediately, Uh, to the way that they handle the pandemic in our province right now. Quarantine for close contacts, no longer mandatory. I'm okay with that. Uh, If you're a close contact, but you're double vaccinated, you know, the the fact that you need to quarantine, I'm okay with removing that. That makes sense. Um, They're still going to be doing testing. They're still going to be telling people who are positive they need to isolate. Okay, so that's all still carrying on. Contact tracers will no longer contact close contacts at this point. They're asking patients to do it themselves. Okay, the data is starting to fall apart. We're not going to be able to have the accurate data that we might need to respond down the road. The one that has people really upset, including me, not upset but confused, is happening on August 16th. Listen to this. Masking orders will be lifted. So they're only in place in transit and things like that. That'll be gone as of August 16th. That doesn't really upset me. This one is crazy. Isolation following a positive COVID-19 test result will no longer be required, but will be strongly recommended. So what we're saying here is if you go and get tested and you test positive, so now we know you are a positive COVID case, you will no longer be required to isolate. You will be told that you should, but you don't have to. 
How many people do you think will follow that? Some will. Definitely some will do the right thing, but a lot of other people won't. And in some cases, they won't be able to. You know, uh, you know I was on Twitter last night and people were talking about the fact that I can't stay home. I got to go to work. Okay. Um, we're going to be in a situation now where people who are knowingly positive are doing what they want to do. They won't be asked to isolate. That's crazy to me. It seems to me the least we can do, the very least we can do is say, you are a positive case. We know it. You need to stay home. That seems like the bare bottom of the barrel in terms of protecting Albertans. Because, yes, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, but not everybody who's unvaccinated chose to be unvaccinated. If you're a person who is eligible for the vaccine and has decided for whatever reason you don't want to do it, I think at this point in time you know there could be consequences for that. How severe there will be depends on a bunch of different factors, but you've made a choice. So, You'll live with the consequences of your choice. Fine. There is a tremendous number of people in our province who don't have that choice. Any child under the age of 12 can't be vaccinated. There's people with immune conditions can't be vaccinated. It seems to me the least we could do, the very least we could do to protect those people is say, hey, if you are a known positive case, you need to isolate. Is that too much to ask? Is that too much of a burden? She was talking about, you know, we need to have the healthcare system in place to respond to whatever comes up this fall. Okay, I get that. We've had guests on the air, experts saying, you know what? These massive, huge vaccination and testing centers probably don't need them in the fall. Okay, that makes sense to me. You know, we used to test 20,000 people a day. Now we're testing five. Do we need the massive testing centers? Probably not. We can scale those down. The mass vaccination centers? Scale those down. The numbers aren't what they used to be. Redeploy those resources somewhere else. I get that. I understand that, okay? But telling people that they're positive and you no longer are required to isolate, it's recommended, but it's not required, that, to me, seems reckless. That, to me, seems crazy. Am I out to lunch? Am I nuts? Am I missing something here? You can set me straight. I'm taking your calls. We've got Peter. Hello, Peter. You're on the air. Hello. hello. Um, my, I got, I, I got one word for this, and it's uh, hallelujah. <laughs> what what, what, what topic uh, are you on? Uh, uh, COVID. Okay. And the relaxation of uh, of the uh, uh, restriction. The one thing that I would like to see going forward. Yeah. Um, and and I take my cues from uh, a program that the federal government had about forty years ago called participation. Uh, something similar should be happening now for uh, uh, public information, public uh, education. How do you look after your own immune system? And many, many people don't know. And, and uh, that, that should be common knowledge. And, you know, uh, personal responsibility takes a huge, uh, it, it's a huge part of this, uh, this problem. Look after your own health. Oh, yeah. You know, your own immune system is going gonna, is gonna to protect you uh, almost more than anything else. No, I, I don't disagree with you, Peter. And I think when you take a look at the people who ran into really big trouble when this first, we got a terrible echo, when this first thing came around and you take a look at the comorbidities, yeah, you're right. I mean, some of them you can't prevent. Some of those are, are just natural, you know, in terms of age and things like that. There's not much you can do. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you can do things to make yourself healthier, but that's no guarantee. There's two Olympic athletes in hospital in Tokyo right now. I'm assuming as Olympic athletes, they're probably in pretty decent shape. Uh, they're probably doing all the things right. Let's go to Phil. Hello, Phil, you're on the air. 
Hey, Trey. Hey. Uh, just just uh, mentioning this relaxation of the COVID rules, really quarantining is only um, for those people that get tested. And the more people that get vaccinated, less likely they are to be tested because they know it's going to be a passing mm-hmm. you know, right? Yep. So relaxing the quarantine rules I don't think is a big deal. I think it's appropriate. Okay. So yeah. you're okay with it. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, yeah. Phil. Okay, bye. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are saying something similar in terms of at this point what, you know, they've tried all the, the carrots, right? They've, they've tried the incentives with the lotteries and on and on and it goes to try and get people to be vaccinated. And at this point they're saying, um, if you're not vaccinated, you've made your choice. That's it. You're going to have to deal with it. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, though, because there's so many people out there who aren't vaccinated that would like to be but can't be. So it... Is it a is it going to the stick with the people who refuse to get vaccinated? Maybe, maybe, but at the same time, it's really sacrificing a bunch of people who would like to be vaccinated, but can't be because they're children or they're immune suppressed, or you know, you know the example. So I'm not sure if if I agree with that 100. percent Let's go to David now. Hello, David. You're on the air. Yes. Good morning. Uh, thank goodness somebody's got some reasonable thought in lifting these restrictions. And for all of those people that are worried and terrified that the guy next to them is going to uh, give them COVID, they're going to drop dead in a minute. There's a very simple solution that does not inhibit my liberties. What you do is you go out, you spend a good dollar, you buy a P100 respirator with P100 filters, and you wear it. Wear it in your car when you're driving by yourself. Wear it when you're walking around outside. Wear it when you go to sleep and the P100 will guarantee you that you will not catch COVID. It's a very simple thing. And leave me alone. I have my liberties. I've made my choice. Don't stick me in the house because you're afraid that you're going to catch something. Stay healthy, David. Uh, Who's been waiting here? Let's go to Brad now. Hello, Brad. You're on the air. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Well, uh, it's been a pretty uh, exciting morning. Uh, (laughs) At times. Um, I'm, in, I'm in agreement with everything that uh, they've done. Um, I'm only going to disagree with you on the uh, making it legal a legal requirement because the people that would stay home if they were sick would stay home regardless of whether it was legal or not. The people that are going to game the system will game the system, whether it's legal or not. I, yeah, yeah, I we're getting to a point, and everybody, this is a big thing that was missed out of Henshaw's, uh, Henshaw's comments were, she commented about the upcoming seasonal virus, uh, virus season. And all of the upper respiratory viruses have the same symptoms. And we're going to see a resurgence of influenza. We're going to see a resurgence of this other... RSV. Uh, I heard about this other... Yes, exactly. Yep, yep. And, you know, are you going to not go to work because you've got a little bit of a cough? No, I hear I mean, what you're, you're saying. You're, I think I think you're right, Brad. I think I I and I like I said I don't disagree with the fact that we do need to come to terms with with living with this. But I think yeah, some people do stay home if they're sick. Don't you think yeah, they do? I stay home when I'm sick. There you go. <laughs> but there are a lot of people that don't, and it's. I mean, if somebody's in the in the office and they're hacking like a five pack a day smoker, well, you know the managers should send them home, but. And that sometimes happens even before we had COVID. But I think the challenge is is trying to distinguish between 
um, a regular flu, a regular cold. And that other caller you had earlier about the, the schooling issue. I mean, if my kids had had to stay home every time they had a cough or a cold, they'd still be in school and they're all in their 30s. Yeah, I hear you, Brad. I hear you. It's... I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I think, you know, that's why testing, is, some people say, might be a valuable tool. I mean, we'll see how this goes. I just think asking people to stay home, if you are a confirmed positive test, right? If you're a confirmed positive test, we know you have COVID, saying you need to stay home. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.